Section twenty seven of the Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Magdalena Cook. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section twenty seven. Glengarry in Gippsland. Jack Shay was not sorry to leave the old port. The nocturnal feast made to celebrate the repulse of the blackfellows could not conceal the state of famine which prevailed, and he was pleased to remember that he had brought plenty of flour, tea, and sugar as far as the Thompson River. Davy had no saddle, but John Campbell lent him one for the journey, and also sold him shot and power on credit. So early in the morning the two men took a tightener of roast eggs, and commenced their journey on Macmillan's track each man carrying his double-barrel gun, ready loaded in his hand. By this time the sight of a gun was sufficient warning to the black fellows to keep at a safe distance. The discharge of the nine-pounder had proved to them that the white man possessed mysterious powers of mischief, and it was a long time before they could recover courage enough to approach within view of the camp at the old port. On the second day of their journey, Davy and Shay arrived at the Thompson, and found the mob of cattle and the men all safe. They built a hut, erected a stockyard, and roughly fixed the boundaries of the station by blaze trees, the bank of the river, and other natural marks. There were three brothers Imlay in the twofold bay district, John, Alexander, and George, the latter residing at the bay, where he received stores from Sydney and ship return cargoes of station produce and fat cattle for Hoberton. Two stations on the mountains were managed by the other two brothers, and their brand was three, usually called the Bible brand. When the station at the Thompson was put in working order, the Imlays exchanged it for one owned by P. P. King, which was situated between the two stations in the Monaro district. The Gippsland station was named Fulham, and was managed by John King. Jack Shay returned to the mountains, and Davy to the old port. Soon afterwards, the steamer, Corsair, arrived from Melbourne, bringing many passengers, one of whom was John Reeve, who took up a station at Snake Ridge, and purchased the block of land known as Reeve's Survey. The new settlers also brought a number of horses, and Norman MacLeod had twenty bullocks on board. The steamer could not reach the port, and brought to abreast off the midge channel. The cattle and horses were slung and put into the water, four at a time, and swam to land, but all the bullocks disappeared soon afterwards and fled to the mountains. Next, the brig Bruthen arrived from Sydney, chartered by the Highland chief Macdonnell of Glengarry, in the days of King William the Third. A sum of £20,000 was voted for the purpose of purchasing the allegiance of the Glengarry of that day, and of that of several other powerful chiefs. On taking the oath of loyalty to the new dynasty, they were to receive not more than £2,000 each, or, if they preferred dignity to cash, they could have any title of nobility they pleased below that of Earl. Most of them took the oath and the cash. It is not recorded that any chief preferred a title, but the Macdonnell of 1842 was Lord Glengarry to all the new settlers in Gippsland. His father, Colonel Alexander Ronaldson Macdonnell, was the last genuine specimen of a Highland chief, and he was the Fergus MacIver of Walter Scott's Waverley. He always wore the dress of his ancestors, and kept sentinels posted at his door. 
He perished in the year 1828, while attempting to escape from a steamer which had gone ashore. His estate was heavily encumbered, and his son was compelled to sell it to the Marquis of Huntley. In 1840 it was sold to the Earl of Dudley for £91,000, and in 1860 to Edward Ellis for £120,000. The landless young chief resolved to transfer his broken fortunes to Australia, he brought with him a number of men and women, chiefly Highlanders, who were landed by Davy in his whaleboat. For this service Glengarry gave a cheque on a Sydney bank for five pounds, which was entrusted to Captain Gaunson, of the schooner Coquette, to purchase groceries. On arriving in Sydney, the Gaunsons went on a pleasure excursion about the harbour. The Coquette was capsized in a squall. One or two of the family perished, and Davy's cheque went down with the vessel. But when the schooner was raised and the water pumped out, the cheque was found, and the groceries on the next voyage arrived safely at the old port. Glengarry's head man and manager of the enterprise was a poor gentleman from Tipperary named Dancer, and his chief stockman was Sandy Fraser. By the regulations then in force in New South Wales, Glengarry was entitled for a fee of £10 per annum to hold under a depasturing licence an area of twenty square miles on which he might place five hundred head of cattle or four thousand sheep. He selected a site for his head station and residence at the banks of the Tarra. The house was built, huts and stockyards were erected, five hundred dairy cows were bought at ten pounds each, and the business of dairy farming commenced. But the young chief and his men were unused to the management of a station in the new country, they had everything to learn, and at a ruinous cost. A number of young men bailed up the cows each morning and put on the leg ropes. Then they sat on top of the rails of the stockyard fence and waited while the maids drew the milk. Dancer superintended the labours of the men and the milkmaids. He sat in his office in a corner of the stockyard, entering in his books the number of cattle milked, examining in the state of their brands, which were daubed on the hides with paint and brush. Some cheese was made, but it was not of much account, and all the milk and butter were consumed on the station. At this time the blacks had quite recovered from the fright occasioned by the discharge of the nine-pounder gun, and were again often seen from the huts at the old port. Donald McAllister was sent by his uncle, Lachlan McAllister, of Nuntin, to make arrangements for shipping some cattle and sheep. The day before their arrival, Donald saw some blacks at a distance in the scrub, and without any provocation fired at them with an old tower musket, charged with shot. The next day the drovers and shepherds arrived with the stock and drove them over Glengarry's Bridge to a place between the Tarra and Albert Rivers, called the Coal Hole, afterwards occupied by Parson Bean. There was no yard there, and the animals would require watching at night. Sir Donald decided to send them back to Glengarry's yards. Then he and the drovers and shepherds would have a pleasant time. There would be songs and whiskey, the piper would play, and the men and maids would dance. The arrangement suited everybody. The drovers started back with the cattle. Donald helped the shepherds to gather the sheep and put them on their way, and then he rode after the cattle. The track led him past a grove of dense tea-tree, on the land known as the brewery paddock, and about a hundred yards ahead a single black fellow came out of the grove, and began capering about and waving a waddy. 
Donald pulled up his horse and looked at the black. He had a pair of pistols in the holsters of his saddle, but did not draw them. There was no danger from a black fellow a hundred yards off. But there was another behind him, and much nearer, who came silently out of the tea-tree, and thrust a spear through Donald's neck. The horse galloped away towards Glengarry's bridge. When the drovers saw the riderless horse, they supposed that McAllister had been accidentally thrown, and they sent Friday to look for him. He found him dead. The blacks had done their work quickly. They had stripped Donald of everything but his trousers and boots, had mutilated him in their usual fashion, and had disappeared. A messenger was sent to old McAllister, and the young man was buried on the bank of the river, near McClue's grave. The new cemetery now contained three graves, the second being that of Tinker Ned, who had shot himself accidentally when pulling out his gun from beneath a tarpaulin. Lachlan McAllister had had a long experience in dealing with blackfellows and bushrangers. He had been a captain in the army, and an officer of the border police. The murder of his nephew gave him both a professional and a family interest in chastising the criminals, and he soon organised a party to look for them. It was, of course, impossible to identify any blackfellow concerned in the outrage, and therefore atonement must be made by the tribe. The blacks were found in camp near a water-hole at Gammon Creek, and those who were shot were thrown into it. To the number, it was said, of about sixty men, women and children, but this was probably an exaggeration. At any rate, the black who capered about to attract young McAllister's attention escaped, and he often afterwards described and imitated the part he took in what he evidently considered a glorious act of revenge. The gun used by old McAllister was a double-barrel purdy, a beautiful and reliable weapon, which, in its time, had done great execution. The dairy business at Greenmount was carried on at a continual loss, and Glengarry resolved to return to Scotland. He sold his cows and their increase to Thacker and Mason of Sydney, for twenty-seven shillings and sixpence per head. His house was bought by John Campbell. On the eve of his departure for Sydney in the schooner Coquette, Captain Gaunson, a farewell dinner was given by the Highlanders at the Old Port, and Long Mason, who had come from Sydney to take delivery of the cows on behalf of Thacker and Mason, was one of the guests. But there was more of gloom than gaiety around the festive board. All wished well to the young chief, but the very best of his friends could think of nothing cheerful to say to him. His enterprise had been a complete failure. The family tree of Clan Ranald the Dauntless had refused to take root in a strange land the glory had gone from it forever, and there was nothing to celebrate in song or story. Other men from the Highlands failed to win the smiles of fortune in Gippsland. At home, notwithstanding their tribal feuds, they held their own for two thousand years against the Roman and Saxon, the Dane and the Norman. Only one hundred and fifty years ago, it seems now almost incredible. They nearly scared the Hanoverian dynasty from the throne of England, and even yet, though scattered throughout the British Empire, they are neither a fallen nor a falling race. Glengarry returned to his tent early, and then the buying and selling of the five hundred cows became the subject of conversation. The whisky circulated, and Long Mason observed that unfriendly looks began to be directed toward himself. He was an Englishman, a Southron, 
and it was a foul shame and dishonour that such as he should pay a highland chief only twenty-seven shillings and sixpence for beasts that had cost ten pounds each that was not the way in the good old days when the hardy men of the north descended from the mountains with broadsword and shield lifted the cattle off the saxon and drove them to their homes in the glens the fervid temper of the gale grew hotter at the thought of the rank injustice which had been done and it was decided that long mason should be drowned in the inlet he protested against the decision with vigour and apparently with reason he said i did not buy the cattle at all glengarry sold them to thacker and my brother in sydney and i only came over to take delivery of them what wrong have i done but the reasoning of this prosaic englishman was thrown to the winds you've done everything wrong you should have given ten pounds sterling apiece for the coos and not twenty sen and sixpence it's a pity your brother and thacker and macfarlane are not here the nicht and we drew them too four strong men shouting in gaelic the war-cry of sheriff muir revenge 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 to-day morning to-morrow seized the long limbs of the unfortunate mason and in spite of his struggles bore him towards the beach the water near the margin was shallow so they waded in until it was deep enough for the purpose there was a piercing cry help murder murder john campbell heard it but it was not safe for a campbell to stand between a macdonald and his revenge however captain davy and pateley jim came out of their huts to see what was the matter and they waded after the highlanders each seized a man by the collar and downhauled there was a sudden whirlpool a splashing and a spluttering as all the five men went under and drank the brine i think said pateley that will cool him a bit and it did long mason was a university man educated for the church but before his ordination to the priesthood he had many other adventures and misfortunes after being nearly drowned by the highlanders he was placed in charge of woodside station by his elder brother he tried to mitigate the miseries of solitude with drink but he did so too much and was turned adrift he then made his way to new zealand and fought as a common soldier through the hecky war captain patterson of the schooner eagle met him at a new zealand port he was wearing a long ragged old coat such as soldiers wore was out of employment and in a state of starvation the captain took pity on him brought him back to port albert and he became a shepherd on a station near bairnsdale while he was fighting the maoris his brother had gone home and had sent to sydney money to pay his passage to england but he could not be found and the money was returned to london at length captain bentley found out where he was took him to sydney gave him an outfit and paid his passage to england Long Mason, honest man that he was, sent back the passage money, was ordained priest, obtained a living near London, and roamed no more. He had a younger brother named Leonard Mason, who lived with Cowdy Buckley at Prospect, near the Ninety Mile, and became a good bushman. In 1844 Leonard took up a station in North Gippsland, adjoining the MacLeod's Run, but the Highlanders tried to drive him away by taking his cattle a long distance to a pound which had been established at stratford the macleods and their men were too many for leonard he went to melbourne to try if the law or government would give him any redress but he could obtain no satisfaction 
The continued impounding of his cattle meant ruin to him, and when he returned to Gippsland he found his hut burned down and his cattle gone on the way to the pound. He took a double-barrel gun and went after them. He found them at Providence Ponds, which was a stopping-place for drovers. Next morning he rose early, went to the stockyard with his gun, and waited till MacDougall, who was manager for the MacLeods, came out with his stockmen. When they approached the yard, he said, I shall shoot the first man who touches those rails to take my cattle out. MacDougall laughed and ordered one of his men to take down the slip rails, but the man hesitated. He did not like the looks of Mason. Then MacDougall dismounted from his horse and went to the slip rails, but as soon as he touched them, Mason shot him. Cody Buckley spared neither trouble nor expense in obtaining the best counsel for Mason's defence at the trial in Melbourne. He was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to nine years' imprisonment, but after a time he was released on the condition of leaving Victoria, and when last heard of was a drover beyond the Murray. After the departure of Glengarry, Dancer could find no profitable employment in Gippsland, and lived in a state of indigence. At last he borrowed sufficient money on a promissory note to pay his passage to Ireland. In Tipperary he became a baronet and a sheriff, and lived to a good old age. End of section 27